Today we're going to read from 2 Samuel, chapter 9, and that can be found on page 308 of the Church Bibles. So 2 Samuel, chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the, of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is this no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machia, son of Emil, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machiah, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your servants, he replied. Oh, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Aren't you glad you weren't on the reading today? <coughs> Let we give, why don't we give Glennis a clap for that reading? I did feel sorry for all the readers today, but anyway, it's a uh, great passage we're going to look at, and it's great to be here today. Uh, for those who visit us, my name's Bruce Clark, Senior Minister, and I'm going to pray as we come and look at what this passage has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all your wonderful kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. 
And I pray, Lord, as we look at this passage, that you would help us not just to understand it, but to receive it and to live it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've had a great morning so far, and I did love hearing about the name of the child that was being baptised, Audrey Faith. Strong, noble faith. It's interesting how we name our children. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why people will name the kids the way they do. There can be family reasons in terms of um, hanging on to uh, the memory of those who are loved and close to us. Um, there's names we just like the uh, sound of. I wonder how many Megans they're going to be uh, born in the coming years, named after Megan Markle. But there's some, also some real but slightly unusual names that people name their children. And sometimes it's just a quirk of fate the way it works out. Um, one man who became the original managing director and chief executive officer of the Australian Submarine Corporation, um, his name is Hans Off. Can you imagine meeting him? <laughs> Hans Off, he's German. Hans Off, my sovereigns. <laughs> now, another one that's slightly unfortunate. I worked out um, this child was born just a couple of years before McDonald's launched their Angus Burger. And here's a child who is known as Angus Patty. Slightly unfortunate for Angus. Anyway, that's just how it is. There's another guy who was a prominent New York, uh, New York City shipping merchant. This is from a couple of hundred years ago. He made a fortune in whale oil. Guess what his parents named him? Preserved fish. Unbelievable. Now, the one I really like, um, he's a US hot rod upholsterer. So all those who love their cars and they love hot rods, um, this guy is a magic upholsterer. And his name is Howdy Ledbetter. And just think about this, when you meet Howdy, what's your name? Howdy. No, what's your name? Howdy. <laughs> no, truly, what's your name? It's Howdy. <laughs> I love that name. Anyway, only in America, as we sometimes say. Um, we come to a story today about a guy called Mephibosheth. And it's an interesting name, Mephibosheth. Um, Glennis had to read it eight times. Not the easiest one to get off the tongue. Um, and the readers through the day have got to grapple with that name. Let me just read to you the introduction, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles there, keep them open. We're at page 308. But if you go back a couple of pages to chapter 4, verse 4, uh, we read this about Mephibosheth to help us understand a little bit about his story. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. And for those who are new to the things of the Bible, Saul is the great king who first became king in Israel, but also became a great enemy of David, who we're looking at in 2 Samuel. And his son was Jonathan. And Jonathan has this son, Mephibosheth. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. And so literally in the panic to get away, because they were fearful for their lives, um, Mephibosheth is dropped and as a young child, feet are broken and he's lame for life. His name, Mephibosheth. Now, the striking thing for me is this, and the tragic thing, um, in Hebrew, which is what this name is written in, the name actually means from the mouth of shame. Now, we had a beautiful name given to the child this morning, Audrey, strong, noble faith, wonderful name. Mephibosheth, who is lame grew up knowing that his name meant actually from the mouth of shame. I don't know how you would get through life if that's what you were called 
And as you grappled with, in that day and age, the great reality that you're disabled, no national disability insurance scheme back then. Um, worse than that, uh, people who were disabled were often viewed as being spiritually suspect. And so uh, there's all sorts of questions that you would have grown up with, and I imagine a great deal of shame would have been in Mephibosheth's life. And shame at its core, one writer says, is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love. You could say we're afraid that people won't like us if they know the truth about who we really are or who we think we really are, where we come from, what we believe, how much we're struggling with. We feel shame. Uh, there's a secret in our life that we don't want revealed and we just grapple with that reality. And what we see in this story is an incredibly powerful expression of the way God's kindness transforms this man who came from the mouth of shame. And the story really is about God's life-transforming kindness that we want to look at today. And I've got three things I want to talk about. Firstly, the kindness of God. Secondly, the wonder of His grace. And thirdly, a transformed life. And if I can say this from the outset, the Christian message at its heart is a powerful message of hope and transformation that comes from God's grace. And when I speak about our vision, which is to grow God's church, what we want to be doing is help people become followers of Jesus, disciples who are known by his love, grace and truth. And those three things are so important. And grace is something which, if I can say, changes us as we encounter God's kindness. It transforms us as people. And I pray that we as a church will be full of people who are transformed by his grace, who share his love and speak of the truth and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus. Let's have a look at these three things. Firstly, the kindness of God. The story opens this way in verse 1. David asked, and when it says he asked, I can see him in the courtroom, he's got his advisors with him, and he says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, Jonathan was the son of Saul. He was also David's best friend. And they have this exchange where they effectively work out that these two best friends, that the father of Jonathan wants to kill David. And they pledge this covenant of love to each other. It's a covenant of friendship. And Jonathan, in that time, really is the heir to the throne, but he knows that God has actually anointed David and David will end up on the throne. And he asks David in this covenant that David will remember him and his family. And at this point in time, Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, David is now in great power. And if you go back to chapter 8, you see David conquering from the north to the south to the east to the west. And he is there in full power. And he asks this staggering question, is there anyone out there from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We read in verse 2, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? The king asked, 
Is there no one still alive to show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is lame in both feet. Now let me just say, uh, for those who are not familiar in this, uh, this sort of period of history, uh, if you're a king and you've conquered and there's been another king from a rival house from which you have taken the, uh, the throne, uh, the normal practice is you would go and wipe out that household because they would threaten your kingship. Now, David didn't conquer Saul. He was given the kingship by God. But the house of Saul was his rival. He'd been in battle with them to establish the throne. And the normal thing that would happen is you would go, now that you've got full power, and you might seek out those who are from that household and you would kill them. But what you see here is with David, who's got all the authority of God, he does the exact opposite. Is there anyone I can show kindness to? Now, it's incredibly profound. And it's interesting in verse 3, the kindness of David really is the kindness of God. Is there no one still alive from the household of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And David himself views himself as someone who's been incredibly blessed and shown kindness and grace to by God. I want you to stop and think about this. David's got all authority in his world. He's all-powerful. He was God's anointed king. And he could do whatever he wanted with the power and authority that was at his hand. If he wanted to order some troops to go and find prisoners, kill them from Saul's household, he could have done that with a word. But what you see here is at the heart of this king, who's got all power, he uses it to show kindness. Now stop and think with me for a moment. Uh, The God of the Bible is not a God to be trifled with. I think sometimes in our day and age, we equate him with kind of a Santa Claus type figure. Woolly hair, absent-minded perhaps, but someone who really is not that fearsome or awesome. That is not who God is. He's not a God who casts a blind eye at evil and injustice and at the world's rebellion and they're turning their back on him. And there will be a day, a day of reckoning and judgment when the world must stand before God in judgment. But at the heart of this God is not a sense of vengeance, but grace. And you see a God here, because you see David is the, if I can say, prefiguring of the Lord Jesus coming, a God who at his heart wants to show kindness to his enemies and grace to those who are in shame. Ziba answers the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, he's lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's in the house of Machir, son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. And it really is stunning that David, who is the all-powerful one, wants to reach out and love his enemy. That's what's going on. It's an incredible act and it's the kindness of God at work. Well, secondly, you see the wonder of grace. Verse 6. 
When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you'll always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Mephibosheth. Uh, he's living in Lodabar. It's up in the north of Israel. David's in Jerusalem down the south. In other words, Mephibosheth has gone away from the person who, in that day and age, would have been the greatest threat to his life. He's escaped to the boundaries of Israel. He knew about King David. He's the ruling king of Israel. He knows how mighty and awesome and powerful he is. And all of a sudden, he's summoned to the king. How do you think he'd feel? I think he'd be incredibly afraid. Now, I wasn't a Christian in my high school years and I attended an Anglican boys' school called Barker College up in Hornsby. And at Barker, we would have, in my day and age, chapel, I think it was three times a week. Um, it was not something that I enjoyed. Uh, I became a Christian in my university days. Uh, in fact, to say it was boring uh, to me was an understatement. And we'd have to attend and they had these wooden floors in the chapel and they'd have an organ and they'd have a minister who I thought droned on and on. I'm sure he was probably wonderful in retrospect. Um, and I remember as a young lad trying to liven up the occasion. I thought, we need to bring a bit of life to the chapel service here. And uh, the hymn was playing and I thought, let's get everyone stomping their feet. I thought I was adding an uh, acoustic accomplishment to the uh, organ sound that day. And I managed to get the whole group around us stomping our feet. And the sound just echoed through the building. And I thought, this is magnificent. Until the uh, chapel master came up, Clark, to the headmaster's office now. <laughs> now, let me just say, my face changed greatly at that point in time. And I had to go and see the headmaster for inciting misbehaviour in chapel that day. And let me say, I was afraid. And uh, with good reason. And I won't tell you what happened, but it did not end well for me. I'll just tell you that. Now, Mephibosheth, he is not going to see the headmaster that day. He's about to see the king. Who in that culture, you would not unreasonably think, is he going to execute me? And Mephibosheth goes off. He's carried all the way down. This lame man born out of the mouth of shame. And it's no wonder that when he gets there, you see these words. He bows down to pay honour. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. You can hear the fear in his voice. He's terrified. He's about to die. And you see that statement in verse 8. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And you see, Mephibosheth thinks he really is as good as dead. And he's just waiting to hear the orders come from the king and his life to be taken away. He's a potential rival to the throne and rivals normally are killed in that day. But David's response is such a wonderful word of grace. Don't be afraid. Can you imagine how Mephibosheth felt that day? 
as he comes in fear. And the king, who has all authority, looks at him and just says, David, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For surely I will show you kindness. And I think Mephibosheth would have been sitting there thinking, what is going on? For the sake of your father, Jonathan. Actually, I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your father, grandfather Saul, and you'll always eat at my table. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? It reminds me of the famous verse in John's Gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes will not perish. And the verse that follows is so profound, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And you see that here with David. He doesn't bring Mephibosheth in to condemn him, but to show incredible kindness to him. I've not called you here to kill you, Mephibosheth. Truly, I've done it to bless you, to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And you see, this is the wonder of grace. God in his kindness showers his enemies with love and grace and forgiveness. And friends, that's all of us here today. Because our natural inclination is to turn away from God. And God in his kindness calls us back to him through the Lord Jesus and offers us kindness and grace through his son, the Lord Jesus, in just the way David offered kindness to Mephibosheth. And I wonder today, for all of us, when you think about God, how you think about yourself. It's a question I've been thinking about as I prepared. I wonder how many of us today here, when you think about God and you think about yourself, think, actually, I'm not worthy under God. Actually, my life is filled with shame. And it may be because of things you've done. It may be because of things that have been done wrongly to you. I'm a father of three children. They're uh, adults now. One of the joys of being a parent, I think, uh, when dinner is going well, is sitting at the dinner table and just having family discussions. And when they get to a kind of sensible age and you can actually talk about sensible things, it's wonderful. And it's a joy that you can have meals that kind of go on extended and you're discussing, you're joking, you're having fun. And as we've sat there over the years, um, the kids, as they've grown older and more confident, have asked us stuff about our life. It's a natural thing that happens. But there's one question that's been asked which goes like this. Dad, what's the worst thing you've ever done? Now, I don't know if you're a parent and you've been asked that question. Um, you can go and ask your dad or mum if you want to. Um, it's a question I've never answered. And it's because of shame. There is stuff I've done which I'd rather not remember. Uh, I've not been a Christian all my life and when I was a young adult, a uh, young man, uh, there's stuff I did I wish I had absolutely never done. And I don't want to remember it, but yet it's there and the last thing I want to do is tell my kids about it. Let me just say, I'm not going to tell you either. <laughs> But God does know. 
He knows all our secrets. And there's a reality to shame that all of us will have parts of our life where we just feel completely unworthy because of either things that we've done or things that have been done to us. And that's the reality of shame and it's, it's awful, it's crippling. And what we see here in this story is that Mephibosheth, who was crippled, who was born from the mouth of shame, is just loved and accepted and shown incredible kindness. David loves him. And he adopts him into his family. You will sit with my sons at the table for all the days of your life. And you see, this story prefigures what the Lord Jesus Christ will do when he comes. The greatest son of David. He takes those who are far from him. People who could rightly be described as being just like dead dogs. People who are filled with shame. And he comes to us and he sends his son and he dies on a cross for us, for our shame, our brokenness, our sin, our rebellion. And he says, come, I want to forgive you. Come, I want you to be with me in heaven. Come, I want you to be my children, adopted into my family. And he gives us a new identity through Christ. So that we are not known or named by what's happened to us, by what we've done, by who we are. We are known as children of God. And that's exactly what happened to Mephibosheth that day. Which leads me to my third point, the transformed life. Because what we see in these closing verses is how this promise of David was fulfilled in reality. Verse 9. The king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family, and you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And I love the way it finishes. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and yes, he was still lame in both feet. And it's such a picture of the transformation that takes place through God's kindness, which came through his anointed king. He's looked after. He's adopted. He's secure. And this is what God does for us in Christ when we receive his grace. When we come to that point of humility, of realising that we're as good as dead before him, And we just say, here we are at your service. Take me, forgive me through Christ. And we are looked after, we're adopted, we are secure in him. And I think, what does this mean for us today? I want to say two things. Firstly, we actually need to receive his grace and kindness into our life. 
We're not born into this. It's something we receive. Something we have to take hold of. But we take it hold of it with empty hands. We don't come because we're worthy. We come because he loves us. And he calls us to him. And I want you to think about the way Mephibosheth probably spoke of David before and after this encounter. You see, before I'm sure he spoke with fear about David. That king down in Jerusalem in the south, I just hope he doesn't know me or get to discover me and I can just live out my days. Literally quivering in fear. But after this event, he's now at the table. And I'm sure he was David's greatest advocate. Great King David, the kind and gracious one. And you see, that's what happens when a person receives Christ, David's greater grandson, into their lives as Lord and King, washed clean by his blood and accepted into his family as a child, a son and a daughter. We no longer look upon God as someone who is distant. But we praise his name. And we praise the name of Jesus. You can see when people have been born again, converted, become a Christian, whatever language you want to use, because of how they speak of their Saviour. It changes us. And I would just encourage you to receive him, the Lord Jesus, as your King this day. But don't just receive him. Go and live this kindness. I think the most profound mark of people who are genuinely Christian is this. They love their enemies. Now, this is something that is so countercultural. But it's exactly what David did. It's exactly what Jesus said we are to do. It's exactly what he then went and did. And even at the cross, he is praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you see, uh, my prayer for us today is for every person here who knows Christ, is that as you leave this door, your resolve will be this, I want to be like David, I want to be like Jesus. I actually want to love my enemies. Because I've been shown kindness in Christ. I want other people to experience that from me so that maybe one day they'll find him. It's the profound mark of Christians. The thing that makes me most sad as a Christian and as a leader is to see Christians who have hate, who put people down, who are not gracious to others, Christians and non-Christians, who have prejudice, who judge unfairly, who are not kind... It is just the opposite of what we see here today. It's the opposite of the gospel. When you see a profoundly changed group of people who've met Christ, and that's what the church is meant to be, and they love people with this kind of kindness and love, you see a church that makes a difference. They're known by their love and their grace And I think at that point, people start to listen to the truth that they speak of. And may we be that sort of church who is known for the way it loves the unlovable, 
who cares for the down and out, who ministers to those who are different and opposed to us, and in Jesus' name shows God's kindness to them. Because we are those who've had our shame lifted by him and placed on a cross and judged and done away with. Friends, in Christ we are special, we are adopted into his family, we are loved, we are secure. And may that be evidenced in how we love all that we come in contact with. Let me pray. Friends, what I want you to do is think about the person who you find most difficult to love at this moment. Who are the people you find most difficult to love? And I want you to pray that God gives you special grace to be kind to them and to love them and that you'll be known as a person who loves all, including your enemies. Let us pray. Father, we just ask that you'd reveal to us those who we struggle to show kindness to, who we struggle to love, Father, you've lifted the shame from our life in Christ. You've taken it away. Father, may we walk in that freedom, that security, that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we show that love, grace and truth to all we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to stand and we're going to sing our final collection song before we finish off. And let me just say, if you're struggling with uh, loving people and you would love someone to pray with you this morning, or you'd like to find out about receiving that love and kindness, uh, please do, we'd love you to pray with you down the front as the service concludes.